And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So I am sitting here with Mark Barbour, the curator and executive director of the International Printing Museum, and this is quite an incredible place, sir. Thanks for being here. Oh, um, our pleasure. Absolutely. Now, I want to understand the history of printing, the printing press. Many people, many top-notch people, publications have called Gutenberg's printing press the greatest invention in human history. Would you agree with that? Completely. Uh, to, to understand why Gutenberg was given the title as Man of the Millennium and the printing press as, as the greatest invention of the last thousand years, it's helpful to understand uh, what happened in 1440-1450. Prior to that time, in Europe uh, at least, in order to get a book, it took a scribe. You take as an example a Bible, you know, a fairly large book, but you know, three to five years it would take a scribe to finish writing one Bible. And as we tell our visitors here, that's if you're taking that much time to create something, the, the value of that book is equal to a man's wages for that period of time. You know, in our terms of money, you're looking at $50,000 to $100,000 for a Bible. Who could afford that book? 5% of society. The rich and the wealthy, the kings and the queens, and then the people who run the church. And sometimes even you know your local church might not even be able to afford a Bible in a small village church. Uh, they, they could be without the Bible. So very few books. Five uh, percent of society have books. A big library in Europe a thousand years ago was five books, worth traveling two hundred miles across Europe to go see it. Wow. And that's the world that Gutenberg is stepping into when he was born in fourteen hundred. You have on the other side of the world. Gutenberg, I'll back up by saying that Gutenberg's always being credited as being the inventor of printing. He's not. Uh, whenever you're thinking about the invention, and I like to say with the invention of just about anything, who invents just about everything in the world? The Chinese. And they came up with printing at least 800 years before Gutenberg. Seven to 800 years before that, doing block printing. In fact, in the first century, they invented paper. They're doing pretty good. and But that process of block printing was being done uh, the hundred years before Gutenberg, but you're carving an entire book out, uh, uh, an entire block of text onto a block. You can't move the characters around and reuse what you just created. You can keep printing the same playing card or the same prayer uh, card or whatever it is that you're producing, but you can't reuse it. And at the same time in Europe, you have the rise of the Reformation and the Renaissance, particularly the Renaissance, and the demand for books. So it's the demand for books that's causing somebody to figure out, how can I make books faster? And Gutenberg, who started out on this project around 1438, 1440, to try and figure out a way to write books faster. And a fascinating sideline to this, 
He never called this a printing press. What did he call it? My faster writing machine. No, come on. Oh, yeah. He, of he course called it's it a, my faster writing machine. He's German. All right. So the, how do Germans name machines? My Schnellskrippenfabrik. One word, no spaces. Germans don't <laughs> like space. Because <laughs> he never saw this as a new process. He saw this as a mechanical way of writing books. So when you look at Gutenberg's Bible, wherever you're at listening to this podcast, uh, there are 48 Gutenberg Bibles that have survived uh, around the world. Uh, here in Southern California, the Huntington Library has the best copy in the world. When you go down there to look at it, it looks like a handwritten book. Everything about that book, from the style of the letters, the style of the illustrations, everything about it said this was a handwritten book. So it was comfortable for the reader. But for Gutenberg, he had a machine do it for him. Well, in five years, he developed two things. Uh, he developed the printing press, but that's not the real genius of Gutenberg. The printing press is a modified squeezing machine, a modified wine press or an olive oil press, a giant wooden screw used to squeeze a flat surface down. He modifies it to squeeze not grapes into juice or olives into oil, but letters into books. The real magic for Gutenberg is when he figured out how to cast individual letters of type, metal type, with a hand mold, a, a, a tool that fits in your hand. And this tool, these three pieces, the matrix with the letter indented into a piece of metal like copper. Think of it like a cookie mold or a jello mold that has the shape of the letter. And then the two halves of this tool that come together, think of two L's coming together, two opposing L's, and they create a rectangular space. And there's a hole on one side where you're going to pour the metal in and the matrix on the other, it's going to make the letter. He develops that process to make it. It takes him 10 or 12 years to figure this whole thing out, but using the alloy that he developed of lead, tin, and antimony, he figured out a process to make interchangeable, movable letters that can be used inside the printing press. And his tool, that hand mold, which made the letters, which made the books, which changed the world, his tool remained unchanged for 400 years. 1850, we're talking about, they're still using Gutenberg's basic tools. Wow. I wonder if there's anything in the history of humanity besides fire or a club that has lasted for this long unchanged. Can you think of anything besides fire or a club? I'm laughing because probably the oldest profession hasn't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides those that you're anatomically gifted with, uh, yes. tools we created. Yeah, tools. Uh, I mean, the wheel is, is... The wheel's a good one. That was a big, that was a big one. Yeah, and it's still used even within our machines, you, you mm -hmm. think about it, even in our printing presses. Um, but as far as one that I would say that we can't call paper a tool, but paper, mm -hmm. as much as we live in this mm -hmm. paperless world that we all talk about, mm -hmm. we use more paper now than we did 20 years ago. I, what, what, what do we use it for? I mean, Everything. But I mean, what, why the increase? That's When you work on your podcast here, yeah. you're going to print out an email at some point. I will not. That is untrue. <laughs> I'm calling BS You're on calling you, me sir. on that one, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I will not print it out. I will send out a mass email, which someone may print out. I mean, this is an international all, all podcast. Of your, all of your tools and everything else that's around here, uh, the amount of uh, printed advertising, the boxes, the material that's in them, uh, the magazines, the stuff that's all around our lives. And uh, so that's we, we use a tremendous amount of paper. So paper is one of the greatest inventions mm. of all time. It is paper I, I would describe as the fabric 
of civilization. Mm. We could not exist without paper. And that's something hard to wrap your head around. But yeah. and it's a wonderful invention because you use a renewable resource. Yeah. And all. But so printing itself though is and it continues to be this amazing tool. We're living in sort of Gutenberg's second revolution when you consider that access to knowledge. To give you an illustration of this, here's here's one of the facts I give. We talk about Gutenberg and his Bible. In five years, he prints 180 Bibles. The scribe down the street got one. Gutenberg got 180. And I would ask you, was that a faster writing machine? And your answer is? My yes. answer is yes, of course. Yeah, of course. But that's only the year 1450, 55. In the next 50 years after Gutenberg produced his Bibles, take a guess how many books you think they printed all over Europe I in know, 50 I, years' time. I actually know the exact number. It's 9 million. Yeah. Boom. Yep, it's yeah, a lot. I do my research, sir. <laughs> no curveballs coming at me. I got it. That's a lot of books. That's a ton of books. So that's only in one man's lifetime. So from that point forward, after 1500, the number is so exponential. That's the access to knowledge. And so when people talk about being able to get on their, their smartphone and, and, and access information immediately, that was the experience of somebody in 1500, feeling like they had this amazing access to knowledge that their parents, their grandparents couldn't even fathom. Uh, when you had to travel so far to go get access to a book, now we have it at our fingertips. In the Renaissance and Reformation, that's, that's a fuel behind that change. And with that, all the innovative developments of technology that happen because we can take our knowledge, put it into a book. This is the secret of the Chinese, you know, why they had such a great civilization. You put your knowledge into a book, you pass that knowledge on to somebody who can never have access to you. But they can mm. read your, your ideas and then add to them. Right. Well, I mean, that's the brilliance of paper. I mean, this is it's the ability to take our brain thoughts and put them into the real world for storage. Because when I get old, I'm going to forget. When I die, it's all gone. But if we can store it someplace, and that was the analog storage capacity that we had at the time was paper. And the printing press is just the ability to, to replicate that at an incredible rate. Um, so I think that's really, you know, what we're looking at with computers now, they're functioning more like a human brain. So we're really talking about the capturing of a human brain into, into real-world formats for pros, uh, posterity, for sake. That's really what we're talking about here, sir. Yeah. That's, that's serious stuff. It is. It's, it's, but the power of the press is not limited to just the capturing of information. The power of the printing press is still evident in being able to reach and influence people. And mm. you're, if you look in the, the world of, of advertising, which is a major part of the printing industry's business, you're not just looking at, I mean, you, got, you went through this time where it was, okay, everything digital, everything online, everything as an email. We don't need to communicate by printing our, our ads and our messages and our catalogs and all that. And all that energy went in that direction. You know what people found out? No idea. People don't look at all their emails, do they? I sure don't. Yeah. What happens? So all those emails go into you. You. you just out of survival, we have to edit our lives. Right. <laughs> it's. I, I would I edited, die if I didn't delete those. I emails. edited this morning. You know, I was like, no, no, no. And some of the stuff I don't even look at. I just know it's in that group, and the spam filters and everything else. So we we protect ourselves by the, the with the glut of information by allowing what we want in, and so the advertisers, in a very specific example, realize that. The Internet's really great about, about um, processing the order. 
you, know, you do your research uh, in other material like that, and you find out what it is you want, and you make the order. You, you do an online order. Uh, but seeing physically that image in front of you, I mean, I just got this week uh, two book catalogs. Uh, and along with that is my Westways magazine. Mm-hmm. Okay, w- Where do you think those are at my house? They are in my male throne room. <laughs> I will be looking through those ones over the course of the next two or three weeks, and I will probably get through every page, and I will make orders on books that I never knew I wanted. Mm. And I will, because that same company that sells antique books or antiquarian books sends me digital information, and you know, I, maybe I look at it, I look at the first image that shows up, and that's it. But now I'm looking through and I'm reading descriptions. I'm seeing the picture of the book. And I was like, I'm going through Westways. I mean, who doesn't read every bloody ad inside Westways eventually? I mean, if it's in that location, uh, in that room, you just say you get so bored at some point, you're looking at the weirdest ads in the back of Westways. And it captures your interest on something possibly. That's the power of the printed word is that it's lasting. It's there. It's in your hands. And it's not dependent upon electricity. Uh, it's only it, dependent on the number of bowel movements that you take. Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> that's really what the world yes. has come to as far as reading goes. Yes, we, uh, we probably shouldn't extend that analogy any further than that. Let's, <laughs> we shall move on in this podcast. So now, let, let come, I want to touch on a couple of things that you, that you discussed. I just want to get a little clarity on it. Now, you mentioned that Gutenberg was named Man of the Millennium. Now, for anyone who's seen The Big Lebowski, they know that the dude was labeled the Man of the Millennium in that movie. Would you... Did you Contest that. I'd have to see that in printed, printed matter. So printed I'd, matter? I'd have to see that printed and placed in front of me, and that would then illustrate why my answer is correct. You don't know the dude, sir. <laughs> uh, so, Oh, so when you're talking about the Gutenberg Bible, you mentioned the 48 lines. What is that? That is the actual amount of lines you can fit on the page? And, yeah, no, as mentioned, there's 48 surviving, maybe oh, it might oh. be 49 surviving copies. But the 48 lines was the number, the, the technical term for Gutenberg's Bible is not Gutenberg's Bible, it's the 40, 42 line Bible, not the 48, but the 42 line Bible. Got it. And the 42 lines are the number of lines of text on there. He tried working with a different number count, but I think he had a 36 line, uh, but it made the book so big, it cost more money to produce, and production costs come into play, so... Well, of course, that many pages, even a reduction of two or three lines is significant. Very significant yeah. uh, in that. Uh, now, the, when, the thing that kind of was troubling, that I think one of the things that made this such an amazing invention is that not only could you do things at a faster rate, which is also very important, but when you've got a guy who's sitting in a basement hand-scribing the Bible, you know, I imagine that his tendencies are to shortcut or, you know, maybe keep a couple words out or whatever. It's still a, a kind of a game of telephone. Or when you make a copy of something, it's not exactly like the original. Um, I imagine that amount, there's a certain amount of information that was lost over the course of scribing that isn't lost when you're actually printing from the exact same um, print over and over again. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, I would say no on the sense of generalization on what was lost is way too large of, a, of an exaggeration of that process. But the fact that words were missing at times and copied again without the words in that next text, because they would copy a book and then 100 years later copy it again, then copy it again. But you also got to keep in mind that in that process, the, those that are writing the books took that job very seriously. It was a very serious profession that 
took accuracy seriously. Uh, they, it wasn't like a goof off doing it in high school for yeah, extra money. So now, now the monks are mostly doing this one. Um, they they did uh, as all of us did in school. Always have an out. You always have somebody to blame. They right. blamed Titavilius. Who wouldn't? And who wouldn't? Titavilius was like the that. little demon that would cause the monks to make a mistake. So when you got called in to the head abbot's office, you'd simply blame Titavilius, and that would end the end the conversation. So, but that worked. That was just an auto out. The I don't know what works for in a monastery, frankly. You're it's, talking it's like not you my do. environment. <laughs> no, that's so Titavilius. Titavilius right is it. a real character in in the world of scriptoriums. And if you ever want to get a feel for a scriptorium, who uh, doesn't? As a as a listener, um, the name of the rose was Sean Connery. Got to watch that film, and it's about a murder mystery in a monastery in the scriptorium. Wow. And so you can see that life. And and uh, uh, let's just say that they don't like fire. <laughs> I can imagine that they <laughs> in would. there. So, but the problem that happens when books are written by hand and copied by hand is errors can get into the text. Uh, so, so Mark, I, I want to go back on a couple of things here. Um, so like a lot of incredible inventors, incredible authors, the people who change history and change humanity, uh, some of them die penniless. And I believe Gutenberg was one of them. Is this correct? Yes. Uh, and I like to say, think that Gutenberg's story is one very typical of many creative, inventive people. Um, Gutenberg was born around 1400, 1398 to 1400, around the age of 40, uh, is trying to figure out a way to write books. He has a job at the local mint where they're in Mainz, Germany, where they're making Mm -hmm. coins. So that knowledge of working with metal helps him in working out the alloy that he has to come up with and the metal tool to create the type that's going to be used on the presses. But like any great inventor. Um, many of them have a lot of great ideas, very creative, usually don't have any money and not much business sense on how to even keep whatever mm-hmm. money they manage to get. Mm-hmm. So Gutenberg's first source was the source that all of us, I think, used at some point in our life, usually at the earlier years. Uh, <laughs> Talking about family, aren't family, you? Family, <laughs> yes, you borrow all the money from the family. And as you find out rather quickly, strings and everything else is attached. And <laughs> then he's got to move on. So he goes on to... Uh, Johann Fust, which is a, a wealthy German businessman, I, I like to describe as, as a 15th century German loan shark. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say that in German, but I'm sure <laughs> the Germans could figure that one out. And Fust is the one with the money. So he's bankrolling him for a lot of years. This is a process that's 10 to 12 years plus in the making. And Gutenberg's not producing anything, although he's printing a little things on the side for the church, like indulgences and things that the church needs to sell to, to help humanity in many ways. Uh, so Gutenberg borrowed all the money. By the time he's almost finished printing his Bibles, Fuss wants some money back. He, so he sues Gutenberg. Just give him some time to sell the books. No, Fuss takes him to court. Mm. And back then, court happens pretty fast. You declare the lawsuit, and within just a couple of days, the table is set up at the churchyard. Uh, the, the judge and jury is there. The witnesses come in. And within a few days after that, you have a decision. And There's Gutenberg, no courtroom. It's just in, on a lawn? It's, yeah, it's, it's like in a court, the courtyard. I mean, it's probably got dirt, but it's like it's right. set up pretty quick. It could wow. be inside or outside, but... The fact there is that it's not an American experience of dragging this on out for years or decades to get a decision. Gutenberg loses the lawsuit to Fust, 
and has to surrender all of the Bibles, all of the presses, there's probably three to four presses, all the tools, the type, everything. And the copyrights as well? I don't think anybody's allowed to copyright the Bible. No, I mean the patents for the the equipment. (laughs) There are no patents on that, so it's just... Uh, that's why you protect your secrets at this time. You protect it. But he, he loses everything. And then to put salt into his wounds, Foose takes uh, Gutenberg's young assistant, Peter Schaefer, who he used to testify against Gutenberg in open court. Not that any employee has ever testified against their boss. Right. Uh, testifies against Gutenberg and then takes him and starts a new company down the street, Foost und Schaefer uh, Printers, uh, first real commercial printing shop. And they do very well. In fact, young Peter knew how to skew his future in the new corporation. He married Foose's daughter. Boom, so when like in doubt, use marriage. That's you know, true. Because the old man was dead on a trip to Paris selling the Bibles a few years later. Young Peter gets the entire business to himself, him and his children and grandchildren after him, three generations. The last we hear of Gutenberg was 1468, drawing a pension from the bishop of some annual food and clothing. He dies blind and penniless that year, living on welfare. Wow. Now, how's that for an inspirational story of history? But <laughs> in 1500, the printers decided to honor the father of the trade, Johann Gutenberg. So on the front of the book, they drew, and on the frontispiece, they drew this beautiful picture of Gutenberg in the printing press descending down from heaven. <laughs> they recognized the gift of God in this man. Never paid him for it, but they recognized the gift. No, so the... that sums up history right there for you. <laughs> sure does. Uh, and also, I wanted to mention the. I think you mentioned that antimony is the metal the that changed the, the the world. Well, it's the it's the alloy. The alloy. So Gutenberg comes up with the with the perfect alloy. He needs a metal that has enough hardness to be able to withstand the pressure of printing over and over again. He needs a metal that's cheap because you got to make a lot of this stuff. And certainly, a guy who doesn't have a lot of money needs some cheap metal. And the third is you need it to uh, melt at a low temperature. Because you don't want to spend too much money on your fuel. You want to conserve your energy. So no one metal by itself works. So after years of experimentation, he finally comes up with the perfect alloy. Lead is the primary metal, very cheap. Mix that one up with tin, and that's what solder is made out of. Then the third metal, antimony. And as I tell the young kids in my audience, I always say, and think of it as an ant with money. It's one of those metals you never think about. Mm. And it's the next metal after tin on the periodic table of elements. Mm. They're all right next to each other, 50 and 51. This is wonderful, useless information for, for everybody to use at the, their local cocktail party. You know, so <laughs> but those three metals have a low melting temperature of 550 degrees. Mm. Uh, now, that's hot. I mean, yeah. you're going to burn your hands. But uh, if mm. you put your oven on high broil, that's 550. Right. It doesn't melt the oven. Oven melts at, Oven's made out of steel, which melts at 2,500 degrees. Big difference in temperature. Yeah. So, so this, then this alloy really remained unchanged through the entire history of what we call hot metal or letterpress printing. It's still used today in that side of the printing field, but to make the metal letters, it's lead, tin, and antimony. Well, that is, you know, you just handmade segue right there. You've got 500 years of history that we've glossed over that you have housed in your museum. Uh, that people can come and check out, the International Printing yep. Museum. Uh, where can people find you, and what kind of events do you hold? You do a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, the, the Printing Museum here in Carson, California, not far from Long Beach and uh, halfway between uh, Long Beach and the Los Angeles airport, we have the, one of the world's largest collections of working antique printing presses. And probably the key word in that whole thing is that it's working. 
We believe in making history come alive by working these presses and printing a page of the Gutenberg Bible, casting a, a piece of type. Uh, we have the first press of the Los Angeles Daily Times, as, was, as it was known for the first 15 years. We have that press here in our collection. We, we print a, a, a facsimile page of the first uh, day of that newspaper. You get to see the linotypes uh, casting your name in the type, and then you step over to one of the other presses and you get to print uh, your own keepsake on a, on a printing press that was found in the basement of Macy's because they had to print their own signs wow. every day for the, for the displays. So every department store had a printing operation down there in the basement. So we do all sorts of events through the museum. We have our school tours and programs. We work with 20, 25,000 school kids a year in our programs. They get to meet Benjamin Franklin and get a, a tour on the American and world history. Uh, we do reenactments of the Constitutional Convention where the students debate with Franklin with the ideas that might or might not go into the Constitution, and they argue, and they end up by signing their own Constitution. We have public <laughs> events throughout the year, such as our Dickens Holiday Celebration, where we turn our museum into Fezziwig's Victorian Warehouse, and you get to meet Charles Dickens, who does the Christmas Carol, as the author, who becomes Scrooge and uses you as the audience as random cast members, wow. print your own Victorian Christmas cards, English bangers, homemade gingerbread, we do the big Los Angeles Printers Fair. This will be our eighth one this year in, on October 1st. We have about 80 to 100 artists, vendors, printers, paper makers, uh, demonstrations all over the place. 1,500 people show up. It's creativity on steroids. And if you want to see this, you want to participate, in it, you want to buy some beautiful stuff uh, as gifts, this is the event to come to. If you want to buy a printing press, a, a, a vintage printing press, uh, to start exploring letterpress printing as an art form, which has been discovered in the last 20 years, the artists love this. It's called Book Arts. We're doing that. We do. Uh, we just finished our Independence Day celebration with Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Print your own Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, most people don't realize was a printed document on mm. July 3rd and July 4th. It was not written. The I beautiful copy that. that you are familiar with that has all those lovely signatures at the bottom, John Hancock, what you think is the original is the copy. Mm. What you think of as the copy is the original because they printed it on July Third, uh, so they can distribute it immediately. There's only three names on that document, and wow. and you probably don't know whose names those are. So I don't. Well, who, who are they? You got to research this. You got to you got to pick up, up a book and read it and I, find out what that answer is. <laughs> so it's John Hancock as president of the Congress, uh, Charles uh, Matson, who is the secretary, and Charles Thompson. Uh, excuse me, Charles Thompson was the secretary, and John Dunlap was the printer. The only three names that are on there. Wow. So, so, but on that event, people get to print their own uh, Declaration of Independence on an original colonial press. I mean, where else in the country can you do something like that? That's our way of making history come alive here at the museum. We teach classes on traditional printing techniques. We do Boy Scout and Girl Scout merit badge days where they get to you know, learn about making books and making paper and printing on the presses. And those are very engaging. We work with well over five, 600 scouts a year on those kind of programs. Uh, so we're very busy. We make a lot happen, and we just we love that experience that people have when they come down here. And as a museum, as a, and as a small museum, in sense of our structure, not not in sense of our physical space, we have twenty thousand square feet of this kind of machinery plus eleven semi trailers filled up with even more machines waiting to come out someday. Wow. Uh, what about what about social media? I know this is a digital platform, but mm -hmm. people are really into this. Yes. Well, and so to reach us online, it's uh, printmuseum.org has all of our information. Uh, we're on Facebook uh, and uh, Twitter and everything else. What are those, what are those handles? 
those handles. You're, you're asking the guy who's is at my age. The curator and executive the curator. director. Uh, hashtag Print Museum. Uh, I think I, I think I'm correct to that. Mm. Twitter is Print Museum, capital C, capital A. How's that? I did pretty good on uh, that. That's, that's not good. that's not bad. Um, you had a little assistance, but that's all right. We'll let it go. Uh, I'll have all this stuff up on the website. I'm going to have you know all the things you talked about, some videos and of doing it in live. Person. I'll make a point to you as well. Mm. Is that uh, compared to a lot of other museums, uh, Saturday is our main day for the general public. We we will open up at any time because we just love showing this stuff off. But everybody who comes to the museum, everybody gets a personal working guided tour through the collection. We make this museum personal on an individual basis or on a group basis. So we don't want you to just walk around, look at machines and look at signs and all that. We're going to engage your history as you walk through this. And it's a history that you didn't even know that that was there. And we're going to create, uh, we're going to turn on light bulbs you didn't think were switched off. And you're going to you know, end up with that wow factor. That's what we're after for you going, wow, that was amazing. I didn't know about that. That's what happens at the International Printing Museum in Carson. Well, I just want to tell you that I had that. Wow, this place is amazing. Come check it out. And uh, Mark, thank you so much for taking time out for me today. This is incredible. Well, thank you for the opportunity. All right, and thanks to everyone for listening. End of transmission.